Hello, and welcome to the Kansas City Symphony's new podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Jason Sieber. I'm the associate conductor. I'm Mike Gordon. I'm the principal flute. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall. I'm the education manager. So imagine Beethoven walks into a bar, 21st century, let's say, right here in Kansas City. And if he approached our table after a concert or a rehearsal, a group of musicians hanging out, what might the conversation be? I mean, people always say, if you could talk to anyone in history, who would it be? For me, one of the people I would love to talk with most is Beethoven. And of course, we're always talking about interesting things after concerts, what went right, what went wrong, etc. And just music talk. And you would think that the last thing we'd want to talk about is music after performing for a few hours. But actually, as musicians, we're kind of wired that way, I think. Yeah, we are. You know, the thing we really are, though, is, is critical of ourselves <laughs> and critical of everyone who's not in the room. <laughs> so I bet Beethoven, if he got done with a concert, would come to the bar with us and he would talk about everyone who did something wrong to his music. <laughs> and then he would talk about how he would change his music. <laughs> Indeed. And what do you think he would order? Like, what would be his drink of choice? We know he loved wine, but this I mean, a why, lot has changed since this, he was alive. This is why Beethoven and I would get along. I'm a wine girl. Like, yeah? you pour me a glass of wine, red, white, whatever, I'm happy. I say Jaeger bombs. I say <laughs> Beethoven drinks like a college student. <laughs> Ye- <laughs> Jaeger bombs are very German, that's for sure. I think, you know, I think he would be a bourbon guy, personally. Maybe that's because I'm a bourbon guy. I can imagine him ordering a Manhattan because I think he's a classy dude. So, who knows? But, you know, I think the the whole point of this podcast is going to be to explore the various things that we do talk about casually as as musicians and kind of give you a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on at the symphony. And we're not going to talk about Beethoven all the time. No. But it's important, I think, for now to really talk about Beethoven. It's a, a huge year. Beethoven's having a huge year. Yeah, everybody uh, all over the world is celebrating Beethoven's 250th uh, birthday. He's been with us for a quarter of a millennium. Wow. That's amazing. It is amazing. And but- there's so much great music to celebrate, of course. And we've been playing a lot of it. We're going to continue to play a lot of it. Orchestras all over the world, our chamber groups, soloists, etc. But what is it about Beethoven's music that makes it so worth celebrating? Because we play his music all the time. Play his music constantly. Um, so in some ways, I think it's hard for people to recognize that we're doing anything differently than what we normally do. But uh, I think I think when you listen to Beethoven, you know you have to you have to put your your 18th century ears on. You have to imagine mm. that the only music you've ever heard is everything that came before him. Mm-hmm. Haydn, Mozart, people you've never heard of. They're composers like Hoffmeister. <laughs> yeah, Jason laughs. He's a big Hoffmeister fan. I'm a huge Hoffmeister. I, I only know one piece by Hoffmeister, actually. Oh. Okay, well, everybody go look up a piece by Hoffmeister. But it, it sounds like, you know, kind of generic music from the 18th century. And then there's Beethoven. Right. It's totally different. He's he's one of the first composers to write, you know, about his his own feelings, his own relationship with nature, his own experiences instead of just writing music that he thinks might please a king. Right. He really revolutionized music in that way. I mean, he was the first one of the first composers to come along and say, "I'm writing this for myself." for one of my personal struggles or personal triumphs. I don't really care what you think about it. And as you just said, I mean, he wasn't writing for a king or a prince or 
the wealthy, he was writing music for himself and for the common people, I think. And you can feel that in his music. I mean, you can feel that it's it's personal in a way that it hasn't ever been yeah. before. Yeah. And as musicians, you know, uh, we, we interact with Beethoven's music from a very early age. And we all have, you know, these memorable experiences of, of playing Beethoven, either for the first time or a, a particularly special performance. And, um, I mean, I have several but uh, but one as I as we're talking about you know this emotional aspect of Beethoven, uh, I was playing the the Fifth Symphony once with Michael Tilson Thomas and uh, a, a timpanist who will remain nameless. This was this was back when I was at, at New World Symphony, which is a, an orchestra in Miami. A timpanist will remain who will remain nameless was not making eye contact with the conductor sufficiently enough to please the conductor. And the thing you should know about sitting on a stage, especially with, with uh, risers, is uh, people who are all kind of in line with each other, you know, look at the conductor and we can't always tell who he is looking at. You know, he might, it looks like he's looking directly at me, but he could be looking at the clarinet player behind me or the timpanist behind him. And in this case, he was staring at the timpanist because he wanted him to make a crescendo in the climax of the slow movement. And his face, the conductor, Michael Tilson Thomas, his face was getting redder and redder and redder and he was waving his arms harder and more dramatically and this poor guy was just doing his job and he was playing everything right. It just wasn't, it wasn't getting louder. And, and suddenly Michael kind of mouthed something that I will not repeat. And I was sitting in my chair and I didn't think it was me because I was playing second flute and I couldn't really be heard at that moment. But even though I couldn't be heard, it felt like Michael Tilson Thomas was screaming at me to wow. do something dramatic. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, I'm just playing my flute and I can't play it. I was a little orchestra. Why is he yelling at me? You know, he wasn't, but... Anyway, the point is, now every time I get to that slow movement of Beethoven 5, no matter where I am, who's conducting, who's playing, all I see is Michael Tilson Thomas exploding in front of me to try to get the timpanist's attention. So what you're saying is Beethoven 5 gives you a panic attack? Gives me a little panic attack. Just the slow movement, or? Just the slow movement. Yeah, I have an, another interesting story about the slow movement of Beethoven 5. The first time I played it was at, like, regional orchestra or something in Pennsylvania. I was a high school kid. I was probably ninth or 10th grade. And it was the first Beethoven symphony I had ever played. And I just remember when we rehearsed the first and the second movement, I think we ended up performing. And every time we rehearsed the second movement, that line that the woodwinds play, including the second flute, Mike, Da di da di da 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 di da 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 di da da da. I just remember my heart melting, and literally getting goosebumps. And I, I, that's the first memory I have. Maybe there was another one or two, but that's the first really distinct memory I have of getting goosebumps playing music. And that, to me, is the power of Beethoven's music too. Mm -hmm. Is he dives deep into these emotional worlds that many composers after him have been influenced to do as well. People like Mahler, Brahms, etc. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk about goosebump moments. I, my big goosebump moment it actually comes often throughout the season because I get to work on concerts we do for children. Mm -hmm. And um, this year we actually did a program from Carnegie Hall, their link-up concert, and it included... Um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy melody, where the students in the audience all got to sing and play recorder um, and play this beautiful melody and sing along. And when you get 1,300 students 
who've probably never been to an orchestra before in front of the orchestra and they're not just watching the orchestra, they're a part of the orchestra and they're really experiencing the orchestra. And then you add Beethoven into that mix that I got goosebumps at every single performance. And if you've never heard 1300 recorders playing, trying to play in unison, <laughs> it's, that they do will a give pretty good job. They do a good job. They, they do, do a good job, job but it, it's, it's unique. Uh, it's unique. Mm-hmm. It is. What do you think Beethoven would think of 1,300 kids playing recorder to his melody? I think he'd go to a bar. <laughs> <laughs> I think he, I Which think, is what we did after that concert, too, that if you true. remember. That is true. We did. I do think he would enjoy it. I think he would be overwhelmed with joy to see that kind of unity. And to me, you know, that's a lot of why we love music. That's what music's all about is the unity and not just of us on stage, but in this case, of course, the audience, but in general, the connection with an audience and, and feeling that vibe between performers and audience is such a special thing. And it's something that of course we're missing out on right now, as many orchestras across the country, across the world are um, with the coronavirus uh, and social distancing and staying at home and everything else, it, it pains us to not be at work right now performing for, for people. Yeah, I mean, this is such a surreal and uh, unprecedented moment for so many reasons. Um, but, but for us, of course, to not be playing concerts is, um, you know, for us to play concerts, it's, it's life. It's, it's how we interact with the world. And to not be able to do that is, um, it's, it's frightening, quite frankly, and it's, um, and it's stressful, but it's also, um, led us to think more about, about that interaction and what, you know, what, uh, is it that inspires us and how can we reproduce that without that close physical, uh, uh, space of a concert hall. And, um, and yeah, I think we're all just trying to experiment. So you're talking about, I mean, obviously you've got your flute at home, you can play at home and you've been putting some really awesome videos out on Facebook already of, of your playing. But there's a huge difference, obviously, in playing by yourself in the living room of your house and then playing with your colleagues on stage. And then you add in this extra element of the audience being a part of that performance as well. And all of those things that kind of come together and make this really incredible moment. Yeah, one of the, one of the hardest things, actually, about sharing music right now is just that, that that I'm I'm in my living room and no one is there and no one's listening, but I'm making something for someone to listen to. So I think to myself, well, what then? You know, I should put my headspace, put myself in the headspace of I'm playing for people just like I always play for people, even though there's just an iPhone sitting in front of me. And it turns out that the iPhone is not a good substitute for a person, and the the opportunity to press stop and delete and do it over. Yeah. actually makes the performance incredibly more challenging uh, because that, that, that no second chances uh, uh, atmosphere of a real performance inspires all kinds of things that I could never reproduce. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like when we record as an orchestra and we're trying to perform to the highest possible extent, but there's no audience. And it, it's the same thing happens with rehearsal. You know, as as focused as we are, as hard as we work in rehearsals, it always amazes me that there's that. It doesn't amaze me. I guess I shouldn't be surprised at all that there, once you add an audience, there's automatically 
an extra adrenaline level that kicks in and everyone's more excited and we feed off the audience's energy. And, and there, are, there are unexpected things that happen too. I mean, you know, the audience, yeah. the audience is there and it could be a concert or it could be just a rehearsal with just the orchestra, but there are things that, there that happen too. There are funny things that happen sometimes <laughs> on a concert. Both on stage and out in the audience. On stage and out in the audience. I, I think you have a story you should tell. Oh, I, well, I do. I mean, I was speaking of, of these uh, children's concerts that we do. and Listen, there are lots of things that happen, and we play at the Kauffman Center, and those volunteer ushers are always prepared for anything. And uh, one of the things that they had to be prepared for one time was this very sweet little fourth-grade student. It was in the middle of a row in the middle of the audience, and we were playing a concert at 10 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden he stood up, in the middle of his row, while the orchestra was playing, and he kind of looked to his left and looked to his right and was thinking, like he had this terrified look on his face. And then he just threw up. Wow. All over, like it went over the edge of the uh, it was the dramatic. wall, like behind where uh, the harp was sitting. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this this poor, poor child... We were so we were playing the tune "Simple Gifts" too, mm. which is so beautiful and bucolic, and and this retching going. Oh, this poor kid, and and he was just off to the left of the stage, so a lot of us could actually. Oh, the poor child. Um, it, might, it might have been the flute solo that made him actually physically. Yeah, well, that happens sometimes. <laughs> that happens sometimes. I, I, I try to avoid it, but. Yeah, one of the um, one of the other uh, things that happens that you know makes the news actually occasionally too is is cell phones going off in mm -hmm. concerts, right? We've all had this happen, and um, you know, many many musicians react differently to this. I mean, we've sometimes heard the stories: a cell phone goes off, and the conductor just turns around and you know grimaces at the audience, or or you know the orchestra stops, or somebody storms off stage, and uh, you know, sometimes it happens while we're playing and we just, we just keep on playing. Uh, sometimes it comes at a really, really funny moment, though. <laughs> it usually comes at the very end of the softest, sweetest yes. moment of a piece, though, usually. It's, it's almost like it's planned and timed exactly perfectly. But, yeah, it happens, you know, live before. That did not happen in Beethoven's time. As Soft a matter of fact, you know, live performances, especially with full orchestras and a full audience just started to happen during Beethoven's time. And one thing this whole staying at home thing has made me think more about, I've gotten my violin out the last couple of days and just played, and, and it's been nice to reconnect uh, to the violin in that way. But that's what people did for entertainment in the late 1700s. And there were so many more people that played instruments. And I guess I would encourage you, if you're out there, that uh, if you're someone that used to play the flute or the violin or the clarinet like Stephanie, that you get it back out, find it in the attic, dust it off, and make some music again. From my perspective, it seems that everyone in the world used to play the flute, or, <laughs> and or, everyone in the world has a child who plays the flute. Oh, see, mine is everyone's uncle played the clarinet. Uh -huh. Like, my uncle played the clarinet, or it's, you know, my, my uncle played the saxophone. It's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. But there's so many people that, played music as kids and maybe haven't played since so yeah. now's as good as time as any to get that instrument back out and make some music again so there are a lot of students right now i bet that have recorders at home 
that can pick up those recorders and start playing some music, right? Yeah, and it's, number one, it's fun, and, you know, it's kind of therapeutic. Honestly, I have been playing uh, more in the last, you know, few days, week, uh, that this, uh, this crisis has been going on than I've played at home in quite a while. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, actually, what's funny is I, I was better prepared for this weekend's concert this week than I would have been if we were playing it. <laughs> I've been playing that music at home. It's, it's been great to get to do it. It's some music that I haven't played before and I wanted to do it. Uh, so yeah, play, Be- play your instruments. Be honest. Are you annoying your wife with how much practicing you're doing? Oh, this is a funny question. Yeah, I. so my wife is not a musician. And uh, usually what she does when I am practicing at home is she puts on her noise-canceling headphones. Noise-canceling. <laughs> noise-canceling, flute-canceling headphones and goes in the other room and will read a book and and listen to music or listen to podcasts. Maybe, maybe she will hear this podcast while I'm practicing the flute someday. And She'll be our only listener. There's, yes. uh, there's probably <laughs> no chance of that. She'll be she, canceling your she noise. She won't want to hear the sound of my voice. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah. She, it, but anything, what's interesting, you know, like I said, she's not a musician. So, so uh, her only understanding of this process of, of having to practice something is, is through me. And, of course, when there's something hard that I have to practice. I not only have to practice it, I have to practice it a lot, a lot of times for months sometimes. And so pretty much anything of that nature that I'm practicing for months, she cannot stand. Yeah. (laughs) No matter what it is. Well, as musicians, if there's something that's a, a difficult excerpt or passage, we break it down. And we practice just one measure or two measures over and over and over again. So if you were a bystander to that, it would be quite uh, difficult, I think. It's not, you know, maybe people think that when we practice a piece, we just play through it once or twice and go, oh, I'm ready to go. But it's the harder parts of the piece, of course, that we're really analyzing and breaking down and practicing. It'd be like if you went to a basketball practice one day and watched LeBron James just practice free throws for an hour. And not only practice free throws, but just practice like one element of his release for an hour. That wouldn't be very fascinating, but that's why LeBron James is LeBron James, because he works on all those little mechanics, so to speak. Even for musicians, you know, we don't want to hear other musicians practice. Like when I lived in Miami, I lived next door to a gentleman who just so happens to be in the Kansas City Symphony now, who again will remain anonymous. But uh, (laughs) Is he a timpani player? No. Okay. No, he's a wonderful guy and a wonderful player, but we live next door to each other, and in this building, we could all practice uh, in the building where we lived because it was a building full of musicians, so that was acceptable. Um, anyway, he, like many cello players, would practice Uh-oh. the Dvorak cello concerto I don't know how many hours a day. It's you know, And it's a piece that is performed in concert a whole lot. It's also a piece that's performed for auditions a lot. By especially by young cello players, so so all day long, all I hear is oops, okay again, for hours, hours. All right. To be fair, though, what did he hear on the other side of his wall? What were you practicing for hours? And oh, then yeah, I was really responsible in those days. I didn't practice too much. 
You know, it's interesting you talk about hearing things through the walls or, or next door to you. I remember one of my first conducting teachers when he spent a few summers at Aspen. He, one year, he lived right next to Itzhak Perlman, who was there for this, like a summer residency or was there for a week or something like that to perform. And every single morning for two hours straight, like clockwork at 8 a.m., Perlman would get up and just play slow scales. And it never, you know, of course, upset my conducting teacher. He thought it was great, but he was so curious. You know, this is one of the great concert violinists of the world. Why is he practicing scales for two hours? I mean, surely he's practiced scales his entire life, et cetera. And so one day he finally knocked on his door and he said, Mr. Perlman, I noticed that you practiced scales before. And then you only practice a piece for like 30 minutes. And Perlman said, well, it's because I practice scales for two hours slowly every day that I am the player that I am. Mm. It's those mechanics, you know. These are the little things that we don't get to see or hear. We just see the finished product and hear the finished product on stage or watch LeBron in a game. But it's all these little details of things that we're constantly working on as artists. And that's something that we hear all the time through our Inside Music series where we get guest artists to come in, um, you know, huge name artists. And Mm -hmm. without fail, when the audience gets to ask them questions and they say, well, how much do you practice? How often do you practice? What do you practice? It's always scales. There is not one person that has come in that didn't say, I play scales. Every day, all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that people miss, I would say even musicians sometimes don't totally understand this. When they're when they're looking at their idol, you know whoever that is, whether it's you know a Perlman or you know for me Emmanuel Pahud on the flute or Jason Sieber on the podium. Jason Sieber on the podium. It's, of course, I mean it's inspirational every time you get up there. Um, you know they're so just transcendent as musicians, as as uh, you know craftspeople of their instrument. You just feel like, oh, obviously they just roll out of bed doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't it doesn't take anything for them. I will never have that much talent in the world uh, at anything. Um, and in fact, all of those people, yes, they have talent, they have you know genius, but they do all the work. And they have thousands of hours of practice. Yeah, you know, yeah. in their in their pockets. Yeah, and it's all the work you do leading up to a performance or a game or whatever that allows you to not only play well, but also to in, in be able to be involved in the moment emotionally and yeah. not worry about the mechanics of what you're doing, the physical aspect of what you're doing. Well, we were supposed to play a program this week, and sadly we're not, but maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, these three great pieces that we were going to play. So our concert was going to start this week with Barbara's second essay. I'll be honest with you guys, I don't know that piece at all. But I was really looking forward to being able to hear the orchestra play it this week. But there's a great recording you can see, you can listen to on Spotify. It's David Zinman and the Baltimore Symphony. Um, if you're not, if you don't know the piece, I know that you know a work by Barber, and that's his Adagio for Strings. And, you know, that's something that everybody, it's one of those that even if you can't name the piece, you know that music. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, so Barber's music, I, I'm really excited to get to listen to that. You especially know it if, uh, ever seen the movie platoon ah right yeah right it's used it's to that me. that scene where you know the guy's running out of the bushes and it seems like he can still run with any number of bullet holes through his body and he's looking up at the helicopter and you're hearing 
Barbara's Adagio for strings. Beautiful piece. And uh, one of my favorite CD sets that I own. Yes, I still listen to CDs. I occasionally listen to Spotify or YouTube or whatever else, but I, I love actually putting the CD in. I love the uh, set of Schumann symphonies with Leonard Bernstein and the Vienna Philharmonic. I think that Lenny was someone that really understood Schumann's music and was able to bring out a lot of detail. Schumann's music can be very thick, uh, thickly orchestrated, and Lenny always found a way to bring out the most important parts. So his recording of the Rhenish Symphony, which was the final piece to be on this week's program, I think is extraordinary. So I highly recommend you check that out. Um, and also, you know, I remember growing up listening to the Cleveland Orchestra and their recordings of the Schumann symphonies. I think those are great as well with George Sell and then Christoph von Dachnani. How about the Beethoven Piano Show number four? That was another piece we were supposed to play this week with a, a really great young pianist. Do you have any favorite recordings of that one or any recommendations? There's a, a, just a wonderful recording uh, with uh, our friend here in Kansas City and uh, beloved everywhere, Manuel Axe and uh, Michael Tilson Thomas, who I mentioned before. And, and what I love about these two, you know, Michael Tilson Thomas, when he makes music, uh, he's always thinking about the big arc of a piece. And the bigger the piece, I think, the better he is at, at building it because you're just playing along and he doesn't really micromanage too many of the little moments. And then you get to an end of a you know, 30 or 40 minute concerto like this and you just feel like you've been on a journey. And Manny Axe, what's so amazing about his playing is he phrases and shapes the little moments so incredibly beautifully on the piano, and that marriage together is wonderful in this recording. So check it out. Well, I think another neat thing that has to be said about Manny Axe is just his demeanor. And, I mean, he's just the most likable man. He's uh, one of the funniest experiences I've had working with any orchestra has been watching him and Michael Stern and Yo-Yo interact with each other on stage as they did when they were all here in December and just watching them, you know, kind of poke fun at each other and laugh at each other. And um, But I remember Manny getting up several times and, you know, asking Michael if it was okay if he talked to the orchestra directly and he had such lovely things and suggestions to say and uh, he's, he's spectacular. Yes, Emmanuel Axe is definitely one of our very favorite artists that we get to work with on a regular basis here at the Symphony. And we hope to be able to work with him again soon. We hope to be performing again soon. Um, but in the meantime, we you can always check us out on our social media pages, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'll keep you up to date not only with what's going on here at the Symphony, but future exciting things on the horizon. And we also hope that you'll join us next time as we talk more about fun things behind the scenes here at the Symphony.